Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We connected with the clearly frustrated and angry Saskatchewan Premier as Scott Moe learned Canada's Prime Minister had stated in a year-end interview that as far as any resumption of interest in the Energy East Pipeline is concerned, there's no project on the table, quote, end quote. The Gilets Jaunes violence in France last weekend spread to Belgium and the Netherlands. Well, this weekend they were back, not in as large a numbers, but still well over 60,000 in Paris. I spoke with Professor Cheryl Bernard. She's a former political science professor at the University of Vienna, and she had some very strong thoughts about what's going on not only in France, but across Europe. Michelle Rempel, Conservative Party MP and Shadow Minister for Citizenship, Immigration and Refugees, joined me on today's program to talk about the Yazidis and the U.S. anti-genocide legislation in Iraq and Syria signed into force by Donald Trump to protect Christians and Yazidis in that part of the world. In 2001, the so-called Alberta Firewall Letter was delivered to then-Premier Ralph Klein, urging Klein to stand up for Alberta against Ottawa and rid Alberta of many federal connections. I spoke with Dr. Ted Morton, the executive in residence at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. About this, Dr. Morton was one of the original signatories of the so-called firewall letter. He said today the situation is different. And we wrapped up the weekend with Dr. David Thompson, a retired Manitoba veterinarian and a great supporter of this program. He just reached his 100th birthday. But yesterday we connected with a clearly frustrated and angry Saskatchewan Premier. As Scott Moe learned, Canada's Prime Minister had stated in a CTV year-end interview but as far as any resumption of interest in the Energy East pipeline is concerned, quote, there is no project on the table. There is a clarity to the, under the current approach. There is no support for a pipeline through Quebec, end quote. That's the prime minister talking. This following the Quebec premier, Francois Legault, refusing to accept the idea of a new pipeline entering the province, certainly not Energy East, um, and it wasn't just uh, the Saskatchewan Premier challenging Trudeau's statement, which included his mantra that Trans Mountain Extension would be built when the time is right. According to the news story, BC NDP MP Nathan Cullen used the word hypocritical concerning Trudeau's support for TMX, given British Columbia has expressed a continuous objection to the construction of Trans Mountain Extension. Mr. Cullen claims Mr. Trudeau's driving Western Canadians crazy with his double standards. I want you to listen to the conversation I had with the Saskatchewan Premier, and, and this came about in about 20 minutes. I had, a, I had a, a, a space available on the program. I contacted the Premier's press office. I said, uh, you know, do you want to respond to this? We have a few minutes we can make available. Here's what happened. How does it make you feel um, to, to, to hear Mr. Trudeau say this? Well, it uh, just adds to the you know problematic uh, the statements that we have heard for quite some time. We see our policy in this nation uh, virtually being formed on on the back of a napkin, if you will, and and uh, there's goalposts that are moving. And no matter what the topic of policy conversation is, we see an equalization formula that's quietly pushed through in last year's budget. We see a regulatory environment uh, that is 
is uh, you know different in the case of uh, TMX when British Columbians uh, uh, you know are, are quite likely not supportive of that project um, where and and the federal government purchases that pipeline uh, to attempt to push it through which we, we agree with all pipelines being constructed but in the case of Quebec uh, because Quebec may not uh, be as positive on energy uh, now we see a statement where the Prime Minister uh, says that that pipeline will not go, and and so we wanted to draw the comparison to uh, here in Saskatchewan. Uh, we're not supportive of a carbon tax in any way. Uh, the majority of Saskatchewan people think it's a it's nothing more than a shell game with no environmental outcomes. So if if you're going to draw your policy on the back of a napkin, at least uh, attempt to draw it uh, somewhat consistently across the nation. Uh, and and when it, when it comes from the prime minister, when a statement like that is made by the prime minister premier, that just car- that's that carries extra weight, and that's just like a full stop exclamation mark. I think it explains this regulatory abyss that our that our nation is is in right now. It's affecting our our direct our foreign direct investment into many of our industries, most notably our energy industry. Uh, you know, let's let's go back to energy. Why it was. You know, there was a project that was in front of the federal government that, uh, not that long ago, and it was it was pulled because of the, the, the prime minister and the federal government indicating that they're going to start measuring upstream and downstream emissions. They're going to, uh, they're going to move forward with a new regulatory environment, but really uh, haven't come out clearly even today with what uh, that regulatory environment even looks like with Bill C-69, which is a vague bill, which allows uh, essentially cabinet more... More approval and more uh, more fingers in the in the uh, in the decision making process, if you will, rather than allowing uh, you know the National Energy Board and science uh, to uh, to find us some positive uh, uh, safe uh, projects here in in the uh, and sustainable projects in the nation. So uh, this is this is very problematic. Well, there's a pr- and there's a pattern at a, uh, at a at a town hall. Mr. Trudeau um, said last year, or maybe it was earlier this year. That uh, you know the the oil sands should be phased out, and then later on he said, "Well, I didn't really mean to say that." I, I question that, but I, you're, I mean, I shouldn't be putting words. In, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Premier, but I'm frankly I'm stunned at what he what he said because he's the Prime Minister of Canada, and he's essentially he's closing the door on on Energy East being reconsidered and possibly being uh, rooted through Quebec because he's saying. Not Monsieur Legault specifically, although he said similar things. But Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, saying it's not going to happen, and, he, and it's not the first time he's made he's made comments or taken action uh, like this. We see policy initiatives, uh, for example, a, a drilling moratorium in the north that cancels uh, the Mackenzie Valley pipeline. We see a, a tanker ban on the west coast that cancels the uh, Northern Gateway, cancels uh, the Eagle Spirit pipeline. Um, we see him now trying to close the door on Energy East. Um, we, we're in a, a spot in TMX where we need that pipeline to be constructed, but as a matter of fact, we, we need them all. Uh, you know, there's proposals now coming out of, of uh, and premiers are having to make decisions with respect, respect to restricting production and buying oil cars, which will further challenge our, our, our potash and agriculture in, in industries here in Western Canada, all because of this regulatory abyss, this lack of, uh, lack of, of direction uh, that is that we need to be provided by our federal government, and it's just simply not being provided at this point in time with this these policy decisions that are are appear to be being put together on the back of a napkin as as they go. What's the um, 
what's the response to Mr. Trudeau? I've, I've read your tweet, but what's the what's the reaction going to be from your fellow Western premiers? I mean, I, I guess I'm asking, what happens now? Well, this is this is the you know what I've always said is is the the equalization dollars are only available because of the wealth of our nation, and when you kneecap. Uh, the industries that are creating that wealth, and I always say, as you know, the sustainable industries that we have in in uh, in many cases in Western Canada, but our energy industry is among the most sustainable in the world here in Western Canada, and we need to start recognizing that, and we need to start working together as Canadians to ensure that we can get this sustainable, valuable product to market. If we can add some value along the way in St. John's, New Brunswick, we should we should most certainly do that. Um, it benefits not only those working families and, and those opportunities in St. John's, it benefits uh, the prairie provinces and the energy industry, and it benefits all Canadians uh, through the equalization program. We are going to be heading towards a, a, a time here where we just simply aren't going to have the dollars to share through equalization. And, and this is a, you know, th- this is just, this is not what the, the foundation that our, that our nation was built on. Our nation was built on unity, nation building projects like a railway, for instance, and pipelines. Uh, can have that same opportunity for us to build wealth in, in our nation of Canada, and we're going quite a different direction, and it's concerning. Um, his, his, Mr. Trudeau's energy minister, Jim Carr, said not long ago that TMX, for example, would add one oil tanker a day. I don't think people pay close attention to that kind of thing. But I, I wonder, what do you think, what's the end game here? Well, the end game is uh, less wealth in our communities across across Canada. The end game is uh, we just simply aren't going to have the opportunities uh, for you know well paying careers in communities across Western Canada, New Brunswick, Quebec, uh, for for our children and that that entire next generation. And that is not the legacy I intend on leaving uh, for my kids and my my children's kids. Uh, I most certainly am going to uh, ensure that I work with our other premiers. As we enter the Council of Federation uh, here this next uh, next summer, which will be hosted in the city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and we need to have a very, very grown-up conversation about what drives our economies in this nation, what drives our wealth, how can we enhance uh, those opportunities, do it sustainably, and and uh, just move away from uh, this this divisive uh, foolishness, if you will, that is really uh, going to take away the opportunities from our next generation. Yeah, uh, your options are limited, though. Our options as uh, as premiers across the nation, I think, are are not as limited as as one might think. Uh, um, you know, if we have uh, you know premiers and provinces uh, across across Canada, you save uh, one or two from time to time. We we'll never agree on anything on everything. Pardon me, um, but we do have opportunities uh, to you know work together to advocate for the industries that we have and. Nowhere is there more uh, unifying uh, project in Energy East, and I wish the Prime Minister would see that and see that very clearly. Uh, you have you could put people to work in Western Canada, people to work all along the route in the construction of that, that safe and efficient uh, method of transportation, and many, many people to work uh, in New Brunswick in adding value uh, to this uh, sustainable Western Canadian product, make it a New Brunswick uh, refined product, sell it to uh, people uh, in, in central and eastern Canada, and then ship it off to places around the world and mm-hmm. uh, do right by the environment, do right by the Canadian economy, and do right by that next generation, providing opportunities in, in all of those provinces. It's really 
almost boiling down to a question of the prime minister's commitment to to national unity. Well, it starts to raise the question that we talked about uh, not long ago. That's right. Uh, you know, do we have a nation? Uh, when when we see a prime minister of uh, of all provinces, or what should be all provinces and territories, and all Canadians uh, starting to single out and support one province over a number of others, and really to the detriment of the environmental uh, opportunities that we have, and really to the detriment of of the economic opportunities we have uh, as Canadians, and really to the detriment of that next generation. And that is ultimately what we are doing here as elected members, is attempting not only to strengthen the opportunities we have today, but really what we're doing is is building opportunities for for our children and and that entire next generation to have a stronger Canada than than maybe we even have today. And I I am going to continue to to partake in the conversation uh, on those terms. Premier Mo, thank you very much. Again, I'm looking at this this quote, uh, Energy East will never proceed, quote, because there's no support for a pipeline through Quebec. So what Quebec wants, I guess, according to the Prime Minister, Quebec is going to get, including another $1.4 billion in equalization payments. 66% of our equalization uh, is now uh, heading to one province. I That's, don't believe uh, that was the intent at the outset of this program. That is staggering. That is absolutely staggering. There's my conversation with Premier Scott Moe yesterday of Saskatchewan. And he said it before, he said it earlier this year when the issue was the Trans Mountain Extension and Mr. Trudeau's decisions and uh, his preference, although you from British Columbia at the time, do we still have a nation? And now we know, uh, well, I don't know how you draw any other conclusion that Justin Trudeau's focus is Quebec. Francois Legault, the premier, has said there's no social acceptability for building a pipeline through his province for what he describes as, quote, dirty energy. The fifth weekend in succession that the Gilets Jaunes or the Yellow Vests have gathered in the French capital and uh, in reduced numbers, but I saw a report where several people have said police were stopping folks from getting onto the trains to go to Paris because they didn't want the size of their crowds there this weekend that they'd experienced over the previous four. So it's gotten pretty nasty in France, and uh, then it spread to Brussels uh, last weekend, also the Netherlands, where police were using tear gas on demonstrators. There's a lot said that it has to do with the carbon tax, and it has to do with the increase of the cost of living under the Macron government. Um, but there's, there's other unrest in, uh, in, in Europe. In, in Britain, there is frustration and, in many cases, anger over the Brexit situation. And their question exists, where else? We spoke with Swiss parliamentarian uh, Lucy Stamm a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the migration compact from the United Nations, where Switzerland was going to sign on and then decided they were not. They have seven significantly the leaders of of the Swiss government, but then there's the parliament below these seven. The seven wanted to sign on. The parliament said no because the Swiss people said no. And so now the parliament is discussing whether or not they're going to sign on, and it's just become a tangled web. Brazil on Monday signed on to the Compact for Migration. On Tuesday, the new Brazilian government said, we'll be opting out next month when we take over. So what is really going on in Europe? 
Uh, Professor Cheryl Bernard joins me. She's the president of Arch International, a Washington-based nonprofit research and advocacy organization with a presence in Iraq and Syria. Dr. Bernard is also an adjunct researcher with the RAND Corporation and taught political science at the University of Vienna. She's the author of Euro-Jihad. Her book, Civil Democratic Islam, was found in Osama bin Laden's personal library. So we're going to talk to Professor Bernard about what's going on in Europe. I also want to speak with her about uh, what's going on in Iraq and Syria as far as the Christian community is concerned because President Trump, a couple of days ago, signed into effect a law, an anti-genocide law, for those two countries that is designed to protect Christians from, well, from genocide. Dr. Bernard, good to have you back on the program. How are you? I'm fine. Always nice to be with you. So five weekends of demonstrations, disruptions, and until this weekend, escalating violence in France. I must ask you this out of the gate. Is it really about gasoline taxes and cost of living, or is this about a different issue or a different set of issues? Yeah, I think you've got it. It's about a set of issues. And what's significant about these demonstrations, whether or not the numbers go down, this is the mainstream. This is not, you know, the fringe. This is, this is the mainstream of the population. And the symbol that they chose for themselves, I think, is significant because it has no political meaning at all. It's just, the, you know, the vest, the security vest that everybody by law in most EU countries is obliged to have in their car in case they have an accident. They have to wear it so that they can be visible on the street. So there's a lot of symbolism in there, you know, becoming visible on the street, but also just that this is every person, every man, every woman uh, has, has one of these and, and can and is apparently interested in the issues underlying this. The, you know, the, the, the tax that they're protesting, there's always one issue that ignites things, and it can often be something very peripheral. And I think it's simply about what are the priorities of the government do the people feel that the government is sincerely representing their interests? And the answer clearly is they don't. So even if the police can block them from getting on trains, reduce their numbers on the streets, or even if people get tired, as ordinary people do, and as Christmas comes, have something else to do, that doesn't mean it's not going to be reflected in every vote coming up. Five weeks is a long time for any protest to continue, particularly if there are five days between the protests where people aren't out in the streets. Uh, protesting and and doing demonstrating as they did in some cases violently it's a long time five weeks well that's exactly right and I don't know if your if your listeners saw some of those those very dramatic images of the police for example going against uh, pupils and students in uh, a very unprovoked very extreme and insulting way these are things that the people are going to remember now, some suggestions are, oh, it also spread over into Belgium and into um, the Netherlands. Even Greece as well. Mm-hmm. Is it the same issue, or what, what, what's happening there? Well, I, you know, I think it's, uh, as, as we discussed right in the beginning, I think it's a conglomerate of issues. And it's mostly that the ordinary citizens of these countries don't feel that their needs are being taken seriously. And there, there is definitely a connection the you know the media in Europe like to downplay that because they 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 want to prevent uh, the issue from being discussed too publicly. But there is definitely an immigration and refugee aspect to this because what people are seeing, and I hear that when I talk to people in Europe, and you you see it in certain you know uh, other types of press, people feel that well we're being asked to tighten our belts, and meanwhile people who aren't even entitled to some of these welfare benefits because they aren't even real refugees. 
Meanwhile, they are being sort of lavished with, with, you know, with government funding, with our taxpayer funding. Now, I didn't think as I was watching this develop over a period of weeks that it was all about carbon tax or all about the, the, the cost of fuel or the cost of living. There had to be something else that was driving people, but it wasn't being uh, reflected in, uh, in, in, in news stories. But there's also talk that the protests have been hijacked by anarchists. What do you say to that? Well, I don't think that the, you know, that the numbers and the visuals defend that. Of course, fringe movements always are going to latch on to any social unrest, but that isn't what's getting the masses out on the street. And that would typically what might happen is you would have a, a middle-class-led demonstration, and then the extremists would come in, and then the middle class would start staying away. But what you have here is completely the opposite. You have a, a movement that started with some with a smaller group and kept growing, and people from the middle class kept joining it. And, you know, perhaps you have some extreme political groups now trying to attach their ideology to it. You're also going to have mainstream politicians trying to voice the concerns of the people. It's just a sign that, that, that there's validity to this and that people are assessing it as serious. Now, Mr. Macron, President Macron tried to, I guess, calm things by initially saying that he would, for a for six months, I think it was, suspend the idea of increased taxation and, and cutting back on benefits. But, uh, and then they were going to extend it beyond that because it wasn't uh, registering with the Gilets Jaunes or with the people of France. It just seems to me, I, I wonder if the man is either tone deaf or he has zero, almost zero support for, among the, the French population yeah. now. Well, I think he kind of, I, I saw the speech, there was nothing wrong with it in that sense, but it certainly didn't seem to grasp the gravity of the situation. No, it didn't. It was kind of a little, you know, cheerful little appeasement speech that's all fine children, I hear you, um, and it, it didn't resonate with people, and I understand why. I think it kind of demonstrated what people are saying and feeling, but he doesn't understand them, and he doesn't get it, and he's not connected to them. All right, so we're talking about France. It's happened in Belgium. Uh, I think it happened... In, in Belgium this weekend as well, there was Denmark. You mentioned uh, Greece. Did you say Italy as well? Uh, possibly. I didn't say Italy. I did okay. say Greece. Now, what about some of the other countries in, in, in the European Union? Do you get a sense? Is there talk about any, any, any um, uh, populist anger, frustration with governments and the directions they've taken? So I think that when, you know, when some of the reporters say, oh, there are fewer people on the street, you know, this weekend and then in Paris than there were before, I think they totally are not getting it at all. Because this isn't a matter of one week, two weeks, five weeks. This is a much longer term trend that one can, that one can feel and see. And it's not going anywhere except upward over the next months and years. For instance, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the U.K., um, it seems clear to me that from the very beginning, there were forces in the UK that had not anticipated the Brexit vote and were, you know, shocked by it and were figuring out ways to reverse it. And you can see that there is a, an idea afoot that perhaps there can be a new referendum or perhaps the parliament can even just unilaterally negate the referendum. If that happens, I'm not saying it will, but it's not impossible. If that happens, it will be interesting to see how the British public reacts. Are they going to allow the democratic process to be undermined like that, or are they going to be out on the street too? We'll see. And similarly, these issues 
I can see, uh, you know, Austria, the country that I observe the most, and Germany, because I read German and so can follow their press very easily. There has been such a sea change in the mainstream attitude towards their own government, um, towards their leaders, and also towards some of the issues such as migration, immigration, refugees. A enormous sea change as people saw that these feel-good interpretations they were being fed in the beginning were just not true. And these were not, you know, sad Syrian families, hardworking, who were coming there to join them. But in fact, they were getting a hodgepodge from all over the world, including mostly young men and many criminals who were going to undermine their societies. You can see a sea change in attitudes. And that's, that's not going away because people more and more are just realizing what's happening and realizing that if they want their way of life to be safe, they're going to have to step up to the plate. Uh, stand by, please. Uh, Professor Cheryl Bernard is my guest. A couple of months ago, Nadia Murad, who is a Yazidi woman who was a victim of ISIS, received the Nobel Prize for Peace. And uh, we're going to be speaking with uh, Michelle Rempel, the Conservative Party Shadow Minister for Immigration, Citizenship, and uh, Refugees at the bottom of the hour, about the issue of Yazidis, as uh, Cheryl, uh, I'm not Cheryl, but Michelle uh, Rempel, has, uh, has, has long argued that Canada should be doing more for the Yazidis. And my guest right now is Professor Cheryl Bernard, the president of Arch International, which again is a Washington-based nonprofit research and advocacy organization that does work in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, Professor Bernard, uh, what, do you, what do you do there, and what's your view of Donald Trump this week signing into law the Iraq and Syria Genocide Relief and Accountability Act to assure USAID actually reaches Christian and Yazidi genocide victims. The Knights of Columbus have also contributed more than $20 million to assist minority communities in those countries. What's going on? So this is a very important bill, actually. It has two parts. One part addresses the legal side of going after the perpetrators who killed the ISIS-related and other perpetrators who killed uh, and other tortured and otherwise abused uh, Yazidis and Christians. And if you remember, between 2014 and 2017, that was the heyday of ISIS in Iraq, especially. And they were attacking Christians, specifically Yazidis as well. They were enslaving Yazidis. They were going after Christianity as a religion. They were crucifying people who refused to turn away from Christianity publicly. They were beheading people. I'm sure we all have seared into our memories those horrible videos that we saw on television during that time. So, you know, shockingly, the previous administration, the Obama administration, refused to allow targeted help to Christians from those countries, saying that this would be discrimination. I personally was part of a conversation with the State Department where some Christian communities in the U.S. wanted to provide direct help and wanted to sponsor people from those communities. And the State Department had been instructed by their administration then to say that, th that they weren't allowed to discriminate on behalf of any particular religious group. And our response was, well, ISIS doesn't have any problem discriminating <laughs> amongst the, the people that it is oppressing. So this, this seems a little unrealistic, but they were not movable on that. So this, this changes that. This allows you to say, well, there are particular minorities. It doesn't have to be just the Christians, the Yazidis as well. It could be Buddhists in some other countries, that, you, that you're more going to react to the actual facts. And if a community is being persecuted because of its religion, could be Muslims as well in some, some situations, 
situations, then you can help them specifically, and you can set aside specific funding and programs to help them. So, so, and part of that help, which the bill highlights, is this legal help. It's going to make possible legal support to identify the people that committed these crimes and the groups, and it also calls on other governments to make available their databases. This is important because we do know that some of these murderers have disappeared into Europe, and if the databases are made available, then eventually one will be able to track them down, just as in the past one was able to track down Nazis who had sought to disappear in other countries, South America or elsewhere. Yeah, and some of them have actually given interviews to uh, Western news organizations and right. almost bragged about what they've done, and that's... As, right. That is major concern, major, terribly disturbing. And we we have about a minute left. What do you? What's your prediction? What's going to happen in Europe? Is 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 the is is the continent going to be stable, or what? What do you see happening in a year's time? Well, I have to. I feel that I have to add one thing, although it's a bit of a downer, because I strongly support admitting people from these communities and from you know Nineveh province and elsewhere. But I have heard just recently from a very good source. And I hope the Canadian government has that same source at its fingertips, that there are, that there are uh, professionals now that are creating false documents for people who are not from that area at all, and who in fact often are affiliated with extremist Iranian groups, making it look like they are refugees from, from Nineveh, from the Mosul area, from Syria, and so on. So I would, I would hope that everybody will scrutinize documents very carefully. And then, yes, definitely assist and admit those deserving refugees and asylum seekers. Dr. Bernard, always good talking to you. Thank you so much. Likewise. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Professor Cheryl Bernard, president of ARCH, A-R-C-H International, based in Washington, nonprofit research advocacy organization, also a longtime political science professor at the University of Vienna and an adjunct researcher at the RAND Corporation. Interesting that her book, Civil Democratic Islam was found in Osama bin Laden's personal library right after the Navy SEALs attacked the compound and killed bin Laden. Shal Rempel joins me, Conservative Party Shadow Minister for Immigration, Citizenship, and Refugees. Um, Michelle, thank you for the time. We also we just spoke with uh, with Professor Cheryl Bernard in uh, Europe. She's a yeah, you know you probably know of her. So we were talking about, uh, among other things, the issues of uh, Yazidis and Christians in Iraq and in Syria, with the President of the United States having just signed a anti-genocide legislation. And uh, you, you've made the Yazidi issue yours for some period of time. And really, it's shameful how few Yazidis we've brought into this country. It is. I mean, I believe that Canada should accept humanitarian immigration. We should be a refuge for those in need around the world. The question in, at this juncture, when we see 65 million people on the move around the world, um, is, is, is what is a refugee? And that's a tough sort of non-sexy conversation to have, but given what's happened at the Canadian border and the U.S. border, where we're seeing, you know, we've seen 40,000 people illegally enter the country after having already reached the United States, the question becomes, you know, why are we giving people who are in a safe third country priority over genocide survivors? So this is a really, it's, it's a needed conversation to have. I, I, I think that the United Nations also needs to look inwardly 
and discuss how it is selecting refugees as well for resettlement. Um, there are many who are in need. Like, I by no means want to suggest that those in refugee camps aren't in need. Um, but when the UN failed to refer genocide survivors, EU genocide survivors, to Canada through the Syrian Refugee Initiative, I, I think it, it, it's one of those instances where we, we have to call for change. And what's been frustrating for me is just to, you know, have those calls dismissed or mocked. Uh, when there are clearly people who are in need of Canada's refuge who aren't able to get it. You know, Michelle, it's almost seemed rather odd to me and unacceptable, really, that there are there are people who are demonstrably refugees, and they are in refugee camps. They've been living in in often very difficult circumstances for some considerable period of time. And if a nation wants to do something to specifically assist refugees, go to those refugee camps find the people who are in the greatest need, and then bring them into the country. It's not rocket science. And so the taboo topic that no one wants to talk about is uh, the fact that Canada has, across different flavors of government, delegated the responsibility of choosing who comes to our country as refugees to the United Nations, um, with the sort of thought being, well, the United Nations is best positioned to determine who's the world's most vulnerable. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. Um, at this juncture, uh, given the failure that we've seen with the Yazidi genocide. Um, I look at members of the LGBTQ community who are in countries like Uganda, where it's illegal to be uh, gay, and, uh, you know, the fact that they, they can't enter this process. And I think that this is, this is part of the reason why my party has openly stated that we would seek under a conservative government to reform some of these processes and, and allow Canada's sovereign rights uh, to choose who enters the country uh, to have more weight and to also ensure that uh, the government-sponsored refugee program, that, that program by which the government pays for refugees to come to Canada, um, is, is focused on incidences of the atrocity crimes, of ethnic cleansing, of genocide, etc. Um, because we know that we have to be nimble and move when these situations happen so that people can survive. And, you know, sometimes bureaucracies, they're well-intentioned, they, they do good work in some instances, but they don't sometimes reach those who need it the most. So um, this is a conversation I'm willing to have. It doesn't seem like our government is willing to have it. I, they would rather call people names. But these are the sorts of conversations that we need to have to keep our system and, 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 and ensure that Canadians have confidence in it. All you have to do is listen to Nadia Murad, the young Yazidi woman who was victimized by ISIS and has received the Nobel Prize a few weeks ago. Just listen to, to this young woman, and she makes such a compelling case that you, you'd have to be the most stone-hearted person in the world to not, to not feel and, and want to reach out and help. I have to ask you one other question. The, the, the Afghan interpreters who worked with our Canadian troops in Afghanistan often were the targets for the insurgents before our soldiers were because the interpreters were so helpful. Many of them are still, uh, you know, they're in fear for their lives. They're being hunted by the Taliban. I've had several of them on this program from Afghanistan. And, and all they want to do more than anything else in the world is they want to come to Canada. They love this country. They worked with our soldiers, worked with our military, and yet nothing is being done to bring them here. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, under our former government, I know that we, we did work to, to, to expedite, expedite that type of um, uh, uh, a claim in Canada. 
Um, not long uh, enough. Not long enough, Michelle. But yeah, let's move, let's yeah. move, let's so, move forward to where we are today. What would you enough, What would you do for I, the interpreters if you become the government? Well, certainly, if somebody has uh, provided value to Canada uh, in, in this regard, a very serious sacrifice and putting themselves in danger, this is something that Canada should look at. We should also be ensuring, however, that we have adequate processes in place to verify people's identity. Um, so that the, the same processes that are applied for screening to others are also applied to them. And that's sometimes where we fall into difficulty. I'm not saying that's the case in every circumstance, but we certainly want to make sure that um, claims are vetted appropriately. Prior well, you know, the, if, you, if you talk to Canadian military veterans who served with these interpreters, yeah, they'll tell absolutely. you where they are. Sure. And, and again, um, you know, this is one of those things where we have to act compassionately and in the best interest of the country, and we also have to make sure that we are verifying claims. And yeah, and and it's not a it, it's right? in that case it's not a difficult thing to do. I re- really, these these interpreters That's need our help, or there their right? families are going to be murdered. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because sometimes it is right. You're in a, you're in a you're in a war zone. Um, it's important for us to undertake diligence. But as you said, I do want to agree with you where there is you know, a demonstrated history of somebody acting in this capacity. Yes, Canada should indeed act with yeah. its authority to protect, give them protection. Well, we're going to keep bringing it up in the media. Some of us are, so there's no getting away from it. Oh, not trying to, boss. <laughs> I know you're not. <laughs> I know you're not. Thank you, Michelle. Appreciate the time. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. Michelle Rempel. I have to do this because I heard something yesterday that I've never heard before. I mean, I knew it was going on. We all knew it was going on. We all know it is going on. But I spoke yesterday, and not all of you may have heard this, with Michael Bryant, the former justice minister for the province of Ontario, who is now the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And we were talking about the new legislation that goes into effect next Tuesday federally, which will allow police officers, when they pull you over for something to, without any suspicion that you may have been drinking, demand a breathalyzer, and you will have to submit, or you'll face potential charges. So I have a real issue with that particular piece of legislation. I don't want drunk drivers on the road at all, and we have to make our punishment for driving drunk, and those who kill while driving drunk, they should do, they should serve a murder sentence, not get just three or four years. So that point made, Mr. Bryant said something to me yesterday that I have never heard from a former sitting high-ranking politician. And that is, it's an admission that that is that they actually pass laws, not for the good of society, not because we need the laws, but because the laws can help them win an election. Have a listen. Why would they do that? Why would they, yeah. why would they pass this law? Well, uh, because it's part of uh, their justice strategy. They're trying to, and I, I, this is what we did when we were in government uh, in the, uh, over 10 years ago when I was a justice minister under the McGuinty government. Uh, we, we didn't want to be accused of being soft on crime. Uh, we didn't want conservatives to get the upper hand on anything. And so we... Uh, we're not civil libertarians. We went out of our way to undertake measures, and and I would undertake whatever Mothers Against Drunk Driving asked me to, 
because we were focused on electoral success. And yes, it is up to the justice minister is supposed to stand up and say, no, well, we can't do the unconstitutional things. And uh, hopefully I did that. But in any event, uh, th- this, this law also contains a new mandatory minimum. It's a mandatory minimum fine uh, and an increased maximum. The current government, which many people were hoping we're going to get rid of all the mandatory minimums under the Harper government, didn't. This is one of a long line of laws that they brought in to uh, um, neutralize the charge that they're soft on crime in the next election. So, th- so this is a political move. A hundred percent. Oh my goodness, a hundred percent. Thank God you're saying that because I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it's refreshing to hear this because I, even when I talk to people who've been in in government who've held considerably important positions in government, like you as the justice minister in Ontario, and you and I disagreed on on pit bulls, but we won't get into that. Um, but it's good to know that somebody's actually saying, yeah, we make decisions for no other reason than they're politically expedient. But this is but this is wor- worrisome then. So you're making a politically expedient decision. It's federal legislation. It is, it is going to be, it's going to impact, along with other things in that bill, the omnibus bill, it will impact the, the, the election next October. And some people are going to be you know, you're, you're, you're telling me some people are going to be hung out to dry for no other reason than there's an election coming up. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. No, no, no. This is about this is about votes. So there's the former attorney general for the province of Ontario and the McGinty government making the admission that laws are created and passed for appearance sake. Now, we've suspected this. And most of us would, if we were had to bet ten bucks, whether they do it on principle or constantly do it on principle, or at least some of the time do it only for expediency's sake and possibly getting some votes. Most of us would know where we'd lay the ten buck bet. In two thousand and one, the so-called Alberta Firewall Letter was delivered to then Premier Ralph Klein, and it urged the premier to stand up for Alberta against Ottawa. You may remember remember this. Many of you will to stand up against uh, Ottawa and Red Alberta of the many federal connections that it had. And uh, leading off with the idea of the firewall, as I understand it, was Stephen Harper when he was the head of the National Citizens Coalition. Are we back in 2018, at the end of the calendar year, at the time of the firewall letter? Uh, Among those who signed it were, of course, Stephen Harper and Alberta's first senator-elect, Ted Morton, executive in residence at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, senior fellow, Energy and the Environment at the Manning Foundation, and uh, Dr. Morton also served as Minister of Energy, Minister of Finance, Minister of Sustainable Resource Development for governments of the province of Alberta. Tad, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and joining us here, and I've received... This got me thinking about it. I've seen a number of emails from listeners from Alberta, not just Alberta, but predominantly from Alberta, saying, remember the firewall letter? It's time for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes, uh, Alberta needs to take uh, decisive action to deal with the uh, complete impasse and the financial uh, distress and, and looming disaster from uh, uh, the lack of export pipelines and the ability of Canadian oil and gas to uh, participate in global markets. But there's a no side to it, too. 
in 2000, 2001, Alberta was prosperous. Uh, uh, the, the economy was growing. Uh, investment was coming in. And uh, the idea of, a, uh, if you like, more of a fortress Alberta, or ideally uh, in conjunction with partners in, in, in uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, a fortress Western Canada, made uh, a fair amount of sense. Um, today, um, the, the number one issue is uh, access to global markets, and that means export pipelines. And that's not something Alberta or Saskatchewan can do by themselves. It's, uh, this is a national issue, and it requires national leadership. And uh, so in that way, in that sense, the firewall uh, concept is a, mo- a lot less functional or a lot less useful uh, in 2018. So uh, is, is the word then it, it wouldn't work? Uh, and do you think... Even with the logic you've applied, is there enough emotion or enough frustration, enough anger, enough determination, uh, pick, pick the word, that, uh, that significantly uh, significant members of the Alberta and Saskatchewan political and extended communities, business and otherwise, would fire off another firewall letter? Well, I don't think, I don't think the firewall... For the reasons I just gave, I don't think I don't think that's the solution. I think yeah. uh, action has to be taken, and I think uh, the uh, you, the new uh, United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney has stated very clearly that if he wins the spring election, he is going to call a referendum on uh, the uh, federal equalization program. And um, there's a Supreme Court precedent out there that I'm sure you remember, and some of your listeners. When Quebec tried to separate, that ended up in the Supreme Court, and the court kind of played it down the middle. But they said, if a province has a referendum on a constitutional issue, and there's a clear majority on a clear question, then Ottawa and the other provinces have a constitutional duty to negotiate and negotiate in good faith with that province. And that was done in the context of Quebec and separation, but it applies, the wording applies to taking equalization out of the uh, Constitution and a referendum by Alberta, or ideally, hopefully, I think what Jason is thinking is maybe Alberta goes first, but maybe similar referendums in Saskatchewan, now Ontario. Uh, We're at a unique time in uh, certainly Western Canadian history where it's one of the few instances in over 100 years where the interest of Quebec and Saskatchewan, excuse me, Alberta and Saskatchewan actually align with uh, a, a government in Ontario, and mm-hmm. of course, that's the Doug Ford Conservative government. You know, I remember, and I played the uh, the recording back just a few weeks ago. I interviewed Robert Barassa on that uh, Bill One Hundred One, and why he had uh, used the notwithstanding clause in the Charter to overrule the Supreme Court of Canada. And I interviewed him, interestingly enough, one week after the nineteen ninety five referendum in Quebec, where. It was just a fractions of a percentage point that kept the country together. Less he's one percent. Yeah, right. and he still insisted it was the right thing to do. And and that argument could 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 very well be made by Alberta and Saskatchewan as far as the equalization payments are concerned. Well, let's be clear about it. You know, we're sending. I don't have the numbers for Saskatchewan, uh, but it would be proportional. Alberta sending in equalization and other transfers, the health transfer, the social transfer. Over twenty billion dollars a year—that's over, you know, two hundred billion in the last decade. Uh, would, if Quebec were treated this way, <laughs> Quebec would have left a long time ago, or 
to put it differently, if Quebec, if Alberta or Saskatchewan had the opportunity to renegotiate the terms of our participation in Confederation, uh, they sure as hell wouldn't agree to the current terms. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no, know, maybe, there's no maybe question with about the that. Legalization of marijuana. Who knows what people will agree to now? <laughs> who knows what? Who knows what they legalize in order exactly. to get agreement? Uh, well, this, is, this is almost. Uh, I've I've called this. Uh, uh, maybe not publicly. It's almost the equalization program has almost become kind of legalized ransom. Uh, it's it's what we paid. Basically, go back to the 70s uh, when the size of equalization increased 10 times between 1970 to uh, 1980, and it was basically the the ransom to keep Quebec in uh, in Confederation. And of course, now we have uh, thanks to another Quebec Prime Minister, Paul Martin. We now have a floor on equalization that no matter what happens, uh, transfers can't go down. It's a program that ended up being used purely for political reasons. It has all sorts of negative uh, uh, economic uh, side effects, and, and, but, but, but it's, uh, it's simply not fair to, uh, certainly not to Saskatchewan and Alberta, and, no. and, uh, and, and frankly, Ontario's a, uh, and Ontario and B.C. are big losers, too. You have to start asking yourself, and uh, Premier Mo has brought this up twice, once uh, used the words yesterday, he alluded to them, and that was we have to start asking ourselves if one province can have a particular sway over the federal government and over how things are done to the disadvantage of other provinces. You have to, at some point, ask yourself, do we have a nation? And that's not saying let's all, uh, you know, let's all put up border crossings at uh, and, you know, uh, customs officers at, at uh, the borders of our provinces. But you have to ask yourself, how, how well-functioning are things? How, how appropriately do things work when you have a prime ministers saying there aren't going to be any pipelines, there certainly isn't going to be Energy East, because Quebec doesn't want it, because the premier of Quebec doesn't want it. We know what it's about. It's about the 40, 40-odd seats Mr. Trudeau has in the province of Quebec, there's no way he's going to get that in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so from a purely political perspective, that's all he cares about. That's my point of view. I'm not saying that should be everybody. Well, it's not a point of view. It's a fact. Well, thank you. Uh, that, well, thank that, you, Ted. Uh, <laughs> that uh, we, uh, the Western Canada is, is energy rich but voter poor, and Ontario and Quebec are, are voter rich but energy poor. So you don't have to be a genius uh, to figure out that if you – transfer uh, wealth from Western Canada to buy votes in Central Canada, uh, you're going to form a lot of majority governments. That's what his father did. That's what he's doing now. So what happens to the frustration level in Western Canada? Here's a theme that I see in emails quite regularly. Even if I believe in the Canadian Confederation today, I'm paraphrasing, if I believe in the, still believe in the Canadian Confederation today, how can I believe in the Canadian Confederation of tomorrow? Because with the kinds of attitudes that we're seeing coming from Ottawa and with the potential re-election of the Trudeau government for another four years in 2019, how can I say I can be part of this until 2023? This is what I see uh, repeatedly. So clearly, the, the, the idea, the long-range picture is in people's minds. Well, and I, I guess I, I, I share that pessimism uh, if uh, Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals are, are, are reelected. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives can, over the course of the next nine months before the next federal election, uh, bring to kind of the 
consciousness of, of Atlantic Canada, uh, Ontario, Quebec maybe less so, of the importance that uh, the oil and gas sector is not just a, an Alberta or a Western Canadian issue. It's central to uh, the well-being of all of Canada. And uh, Mr. Trudeau and this minority government, and let's remember, it's not the majority of people in B.C., it's a minority government in B.C., uh, the NDP with right. Green Coalition, uh, have created a huge amount of uh, economic dis- destruction uh, and with, that promises to get much worse in the next couple of years unless it's reversed. And I think I'm hopeful that uh, Andrew Scheer and the federal conservatives working with smart, articulate premiers uh, of Ontario, Saskatchewan, and, and I think uh, Jason Kenney uh, will be the next premier of Alberta, that that can put together a team and, and I'm even, if you know a bit about Premier Legault, the new Premier of Quebec, I mean, we certainly don't like what he said last week about, we'll take your dirty money, but not your dirty oil. That was, that's what set off, that's why Alberta's on fire right now. Do you know what that, that sounded like, Ted? That sounded to me like what I would hear from a Parti Québécois or the <laughs> Bloc Québécois. And we well, know and that Monsieur Legault was, was a minister in the Parti Québécois government. Well, but he also, he's a successful private sector I know, I know that. I know he's that. a lot of... Uh, positive things during the campaign. Yep. And Quebec has some other issues they're interested in. I'd like to think with a smart guy like Jason Kenney and, and Jason and, and Andrew Shear and and uh, and uh, Mo and, and and Ford that uh, there there can be some opportunity f- to find uh, a way forward on pipelines uh, with with Mr. Legault. A lot of times politicians save things for domestic. For political <laughs> benefit inside the province, and it ends up, of course, boomeranging uh, with the rest of Canada. Let's let's hope maybe. I mean, it sure as hell did boomerang for the past seven days since yeah. he said that. But let's hope going forward with uh, maybe some new leadership from Alberta that uh, uh, something. Well, I've said very clearly, the status quo is not acceptable. I'm not in favor of separation, but I won't. The the, the status quo is not acceptable either. So. I think uh, if uh, if the next premier of, of Alberta, or maybe this premier, we could we could have this referendum on equalization this spring. We don't have to wait for uh, a change of government. That that would get the ball rolling uh, to start some 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 serious discussion about how to break this impasse. One of the things never to uh, to forget is the importance, the really importance of the of the uh, ground. The groundswell of opinion, the voters, the, the 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 average citizen, if you will, because we sometimes find ourselves talking about politicians will do that and governments will do this and this is what what our plans are. Well, they better coincide with the plans and the thoughts and the object, uh, objectives of a majority of people. And I'm just saying, just from my perspective here in the, on the in this chair, dealing with people across much of the country, the uh, there there's a there's a definite uh, growing and a, a frustration and anger. And I tweeted two weeks ago. This may interest you. It's clearly not scientific. It's just what I get it by way of emails. But emails that I receive from Ontario, 99 percent plus supportive of Alberta. Now, again, not scientific, just emails that are coming in. But I don't get the, you know, I used to see the odd, uh, see maybe more than the odd, well, they they are the architects of their own of their own mess. Don't see that so much anymore, even hardly ever at all. Well, let's face it, the election of, um, of Doug Ford uh, in uh, last summer uh, represented a huge change in Ontario politics, yep. and it, rep- it, it represented a rejection of Ontario Liberal Party, 
policies on taxation, right. uh, cultural issues, identity politics, and and energy, uh, energy and climate change, which are basically the same the same issues that uh, uh, Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals are also uh, pushing so right. hard at at the federal level. Right. So the Ontario voters have seen this movie at the provincial level and said we don't want it anymore. Uh, and I'm hoping uh, again with some leadership from uh, from uh, Andrew Shear and uh, with some help from provincial premiers uh, like Doug Ford and, and, and in the future, I, yeah. I think, uh, um, uh, Kenny, that uh, Ontario voters say, yeah, we didn't like that movie when it was a, on, a, on the provincial we'll, screen, and we don't like it on the federal screen, so let's change We'll, we'll see. We'll see and, soon. And, and Ontario holds cards, right? right. They have... Uh, Ted, I have, they, to stop. I have to stop because of the clock, but I bet. do appreciate you, appreciate you coming on, so this is not the time for the sequel to the firewall letter for all the reasons you pointed out. I thanks, thanks so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Dr. Ted Morton. I had a unique opportunity a week ago, and that was to speak to Dr. David Thompson of Manitoba. Dr. Thompson listens to this program on a regular basis, and he just celebrated his 100th birthday. And we had a conversation last Sunday after the show, and Dr. Thompson, I had to talk to you on the radio. So... Thanks for coming on, and again, happy 100th birthday well, to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> what, a, what a tremendous milestone. Uh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of memories, really. Well, I would imagine that you have seen so much and so much in the way of developments in the world. And yeah. And listening to your program today, it really gives you a real insight of what goes on down east. Uh, when you when you think of what's going on politically in 2018, and then you go back to the years when you were a young man, and yeah. and and the the country was was still developing, how does it make you feel today when you uh, oh. when you look at the politics of 2018? Oh. Frustrated, yeah, mad. Yeah. I often wondered, you know, about um, Peter Lougheed. Where did he figure in this? Didn't he take a a go at? Uh, Pierre Trudeau. Yeah, the, that's right. The former premier of Alberta. Yeah, and that was uh, that was Pierre Trudeau. Yeah, his dad. Yeah, there was there was uh, there was some conflict there. How's it uh, when you when you reach a hundred years of age? Yeah, I, I'm going to ask you the silly question that everybody asks. Yeah, how's it feel? And you're probably going to tell me just like it felt when I turned ninety nine. Uh, well, if uh, your old frame begins to wear out, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, George Burns used to say. If I would know, if I had known I was going to be this old, I'd change my life. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're you have a, a large and loving family who uh, who contacted us about you and yeah, my daughters uh, they pretty well look after me. They put quite a spread on for me uh, a week ago on right. my birthday, and uh, it kind of uh, slowed me down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> And you were uh, you were a veterinarian for many years. Yeah, my father, my father was a veterinarian. Right. And my oldest brother, he was a veterinarian, and my next brother, veterinarian, and I was a veterinarian. Four of us. Well, what a great family tradition. And then when I went to Guelph in '38, oh, no kidding. The registrar asked me. He says, "Is there any more at home after you?" <laughs> <laughs> so there had been a succession at Guelph. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh my! Well, I'm. So, it was a thrill for me to have the opportunity to speak with you, and and I wish you again a very happy 100th birthday. And it's an honor to know that you listen to the program. Well, it's sir. really a treat to talk to you, Roy. I enjoy your program so much. I miss. 
I missed it for several years. You know, you were off there, weren't you? I was. We weren't on in, uh, in in Manitoba for a few years, but we've been back on for over a year now. Yeah, and because uh, I know I used to say, say that to my nephew out in Surrey, B.C., and he's my, <laughs> like a son to me, he's my press agent, I call him. <laughs> but he he listens to you quite regular. Well, I and, appreciate uh, that. I said about uh, how I missed you, and so you know what he did? He picked up the phone, and he phoned CJOB down here, and he wanted to know how come you're not having... Roy Green on the show anymore, you know. So and he's responsible. He's responsible. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Thompson, happy 100th birthday, and thank you so much well, for th- listening to the show. Oh, thank you ever so much, Roy. It's nice talking to you. All the very best to you, sir. Thank you, sir. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch with you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.